baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And baptism uh, does not save us, but it is a picture of salvation. It is a picture of what happened, the spiritual reality of what happened at salvation, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that is the only way for you to be saved, it is not by works, but it is by grace, uh, so that nobody can boast in it. And it's only by putting our faith and trust in Jesus um, that we can have eternal life and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that once we were not his children, but now we are his children. That's why we're, it says we're born again. But what happens is in that moment when that happens, that we die with him, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He also rose, and we are simultaneously risen with him. And now all of this life as disciples is, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life we now live in this body, in this flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who says, loved us and gave himself for us. And so that's what we're going to be witnesses of today. And man, I'm so excited that Amanda, with two people getting baptized, Casey Lau and Amanda Yoder, and Amanda is going to come share some of her story this morning. Amanda, I'm not sure where you're at. I'm looking for you here. Oh, right there in the front row. See, I'm used to overlooking a few. Um, but you can start to make your way up, Amanda. Uh, I just want to say that a couple weeks ago, I've just been getting to know Amanda over the last couple weeks. So a couple weeks ago, Conrad and I uh, met her and Wes for lunch at Beggs um, in Sugar Creek. And by the end of our lunch, after Amanda was done telling her story, like, maybe I probably shouldn't have held back, but like, I just wanted to stand up in the middle of Beggs and just be like, Praise Jesus! You know, like, I mean, it was just, it was just awesome. Like, Amanda's story uh, caused me to worship that day at Beggs, and so I asked her if she would be willing to share her story, because I know that it's going to help you guys worship today, too. And so, would you please just make her feel welcome as she comes? Morning, Amanda. There you go. As he said, my name's Amanda, and I'm just recently married to Yoder over here. Yay. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, when I first met with Eric, he said we had lunch, and um, he asked me afterwards, he said, what do you think about sharing your story? And I said, uh, mm, I will think about it. And um, that's my... I don't know, semi-polite way of saying no. I'll text you no later. Because, um, yeah. But anyway, um, I think God had other plans, because here I am. And um, first of all, um, I want to say that the only reason I stand here in front of you today is because of Jesus Christ. That's it. No other reason. Um, his ability to take a mess and make it a message, it just continually blows my mind on a daily basis. And um, I want you to hear about his unending love, his unconditional love, and his unmerited amazing grace. Um, my life and where I've been, it's all about Jesus. Um, before I start my story, I want to read a little bit from Isaiah 61, and I'm, I'm sure they are familiar verses to you. Um, I'll start in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then jumping down to verse 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a beautiful bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You just let that soak in for a minute. Um, I wanted to say, you do not have to walk the road that I walked to experience grace. Um, We humans tend to put everything on levels. That's not what God does. God sees it from the top and it's all sin to him. And so you don't have to be where I've been to experience grace. Um, So I guess I'll start with my story. Um, I was born and raised in a good conservative Christian home in central Pennsylvania. And I know this is gonna totally earn me some brownie points, but go Penn State. Um, (laughs) I remember being in church almost every time the doors were open. The church I was brought in up in was um, conservative, Mennonite, um, a bit legalistic. Um, I remember saying the sinner's prayer when I was seven or eight, and I think that at that time my heart was sincere. I believe that. Um, but it was more a salvation based on fear than actually understanding who God was and what he had done for me. Um, I, I wanted to do good and I wanted to do right, but I also had a lot of questions that I just didn't seem to get good answers for. Um, it was a lot of do this, do this, do this, and there wasn't really a good reason to do it, just do it. Um, I was baptized when I was around 13, I think, at our home church, the church I was raised in. Um, In that particular church, baptism and church membership went hand in hand. Um, I wanted to be baptized, but not a church member. Uh, But since that wasn't an option, I just, I went ahead and got baptized anyway. Um, I raised, I started asking a lot of questions in my early teens about why we did the things we did. Um, And I remember my heart and my motives being questioned. just just do what we tell you to do, and, and that'll be good. Um, there was no real reason behind the, the outside booking rate. And um, so I, I tend to be a little bit of a people pleaser, and I want to make everybody happy, so I just kind of shut up and, and did what I was told. Um, that kept peace and that kept people happy. So that's, 
a habit I learned very early on and um, one that almost took my life. Um, my childhood was pretty normal. I came second out of four kids. I have an older brother and two younger sisters. Um, I was a quiet one, a bit of an introvert, and probably still am a little bit. Um, when I say that my childhood was normal, um, I'm just now starting to realize how sad and broken a normal childhood looks. Um, I was molested when I was about five or six, and again when I was 11. Um, both were by close family members. Unfortunately, that's the normal world of today. Um, though both were traumatic, uh, the one that happened when I was 11 was had a far greater impact on my life. By the time I hit my teen years, um, I had no self-esteem. Um, I didn't like myself. I didn't think I had anything to offer. Um, in my early teens, uh, my brother, who is several years older than me, he started getting involved in, in drugs and alcohol, which caused a lot of turmoil in our family. Um, my parents were desperate to make him to make him stop, um, and so there was a lot of a lot of fighting. I remember um, at night um, when he would come home, it was it would be usually more of like two three o'clock in the morning, and they would just be yelling and and screaming, and my mom would be crying, and I hated it. I hated it so bad. Um, I remember pulling the head over, pillow over my head just to try and block that out. Um, I'd never been close to my brother, and the conflict he brought to our family only made that worse. Um, I kept my feelings to myself um, about him. I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so I just kept that anger inside. Um, Throughout my mid-late teens, I remained a good kid. I listened to good kid. I'm, my heart was far from good. Um, I listened to my church. And I listened to my parents' rules, though I didn't agree with them. I avoided conflict at any cost, and that meant doing what people wanted and expected from me. My younger sisters both struggled and they left the church and Christianity while they were still young. And I remember being told by my siblings, um, you are the only good kid of the bunch. You need to stay that way because if you don't, your mom and dad will fall apart. I remember being told that by church members, oh, you're such a great kid, your parents must be so proud. And, and it just made me so angry um, because I knew inside that I wasn't it was all a, just a front. Um, it was a lot of pressure for any person, but especially a person that was wrapped up, whose identity was wrapped up in keeping peace and keeping people happy. When I was 18, I had the opportunity to go work as a volunteer in a nursing home um, in Arkansas, Hillcrest Home. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with that. It's run by conservative Mennonites. Um, and you can go volunteer um, there and 
and work. And um, it, was, it was a great opportunity. I jumped all over that. And I spent the next three years of my life there. I loved it. And I loved even more that I was able to escape the turmoil going on at home and at church. I loved the work, and I went on to get my nursing degree while I was there in Arkansas. Um, while I was there, I learned that just because you move doesn't mean your problems don't come with you. You cannot run away from your problems. Um, about halfway through my time there, I got a phone call from my brother, which was really weird because we didn't really talk. And um, I listened in shock as he told me that he was going to state prison for five years for being sexually involved with a minor. And um, I remember telling him that I forgive you and I love you anyway, because um, that's what a good Christian woman does. Um, but my heart was nowhere close to that. I remember hanging up the phone and sitting on my bed and uh, just this truckload of emotions um, and memories of what he had done to me and our family. And they, they just like hit me like a brick. And I had no idea what to do with that, what to, how to process that. So I stuffed them because that's how I did things. That's what I was used to. That's what I knew to do, so that's what I did. There was no tears, no tantrum, no nothing on the outside. On the inside, my hatred towards my brother deepened. I hated everything that he did to me, that he did to our family, and to his wife and child. I remember feeling a rage so violent, it scared me. But I had no words to put to my feelings, and I didn't want people to think I was a terrible person because of the way I was feeling. So I started self-harm cutting. Um, it was my outlet, it was my vice. Um, the rage went away, but it was replaced with shame. I couldn't stop, I didn't know how to stop. And I didn't tell anybody, because I guess that's just not a common thing in, in the circles that I was surrounded by. Um, I, um, it helped me to keep everybody happy, but at the same time, it helped me maintain my sanity while trying to do that. Um, I graduated from nursing school in 2008, and after that, I returned home to central Pennsylvania. And when I got home, reality hit me very hard. My brother really was locked up. I couldn't get away from that. Um, my sisters, they were struggling badly. My parents were a mess. My church was going through an ugly, ugly split over something I thought was ridiculous. Really was, I think. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, but anyway, my last single best friend was getting married, and um, that's when I kind of came unglued. I remember being at her wedding, being down in the dumps about losing another friend to a man and just kind of about life in general. An acquaintance of mine suggested we go get a drink. And up until that point, I never considered alcohol an option at all. Um, my dad is a recovered alcoholic and um, had begged us kids, never touch the stuff. You, you don't know what road it will take you down um, and he was right. 
Um, I remember going, and I remember the very first drink I got, it was a raspberry martini. Um, and that first drink sunk its claws deep into me. Um, I loved the way alcohol made me feel. I loved being relaxed. I loved that I didn't have to worry about anything in this world. It just all went away. And um, my drinking, it started out as social drinking. And within a year, I was a full-blown functioning alcoholic. Um, my world revolved around drinking. I drank when I was sad, I drank when I was happy, I drank when I was depressed, excited, you name it, every emotion under the sun I drank. Um, I stayed away from men because I didn't really trust them. I had no interest because of all the bad relationships I had witnessed. I had a good solid job, I had money, and I had alcohol, and I didn't really care about anything else. Um, that changed a little bit. When I was 24, my aunt set me up with a guy she knew. And I told her, I said, look, I don't need men. I don't really care about them. I don't want them. I'm not interested. And she's like, oh, but he's this great guy. You got to meet him. So I did. I, I obliged. I wanted to make her happy. Um, and that ended up being a complete disaster. I didn't want to be with anybody to begin with, let alone the physical advances that happened. My drinking became heavier while we were together. And about two months of us being together, um, I guess he got tired of waiting and I was, um, was date raped. Um, I don't remember anything about that night, obviously. Um, I remember waking up on a bedroom floor, completely naked, with a hangover from hell, not knowing what had happened. And he sat there and he just looked at me and I said, what happened? And he said, we had sex, like it, like it was no big deal. Um, I, was, I was devastated. That was the last good part of me that I had left. Um, shame and anger and hurt flooded every fiber of my being and I broke up with him that day and about a month later I found out I was pregnant um, my drinking was forced to a screeching halt I didn't want a baby but if I had any beliefs at that time it was that abortion was wrong so I sobered up but I didn't deal with anything. I was surviving, but not much beyond that. And about halfway through my pregnancy, the do doctors discovered my baby was sick. He was diagnosed with spina bifida at 20 weeks in utero. After realizing that they weren't going to convince me to terminate my pregnancy, doctors came alongside me and prepared me for what taking care of a child with spina bifida looked like, and it was overwhelming. But I threw everything I could into learning about how to take care for my little boy. My sweet baby was born in July of 2012 and he was beautiful and he was perfect and he was sick. Um, what was predicted to be a two week stay in NICU turned out to be much longer. Most of his first year 
was spent in the ICU of our children's hospital, and it was, it was like being on a roller coaster. You know, like one day they'd tell me, we think we know what's wrong with him, and we had got some answers for it, and the, literally the next day, there's nothing we can do for him. Um, he would code on a regular basis, and they didn't know why. Um, but God gave me a miracle, and at 10 months old, he just made this turnaround, and he came home. He was um, trach and ventilator dependent, um, but he was just, in my eyes, he was just perfect. And um, I was so happy to have him. I wish that I could say my child was enough to keep me sober. Um, I wish that with all my heart. Um, the amount of stress with taking care of a special needs child is unbelievable. And I don't blame that for me turning back to alcohol. It was my choice to go back to alcohol. And I did about two months after he was born. I went back to what I knew worked. And, um, and it took away the stress. I wanted to be a good mom, I really did. And for the most part, I functioned well as an alcoholic. I figured out a system that worked and I went with it. Um, my son, he came home on Mother's Day of 2013 and he required around the clock care. And I had a lot of help taking care of him and also meant I could keep up my drinking habits. I, um, I would drink till I passed out and then I'd wake up to take care of my son. And um, then after he was tucked into bed for the night, I would go to work, I worked overnight, and then I'd come home in the morning and there was already a nurse there to take care of him and I would just repeat the process and it went on and on and on like that for um, several years. Um, it's funny how when you're in that situation, you think you've got it all under control, when you are just completely out of control. Um, I remember the first time I was um, in the hospital with alcohol poisoning and I thought, okay, maybe this, this might be a problem, so maybe I should cut back. And that lasted a couple days and I was right back at it. Um, as much as I didn't like men, I found that with the alcohol came men. They kind of went hand in hand. Um, it is to my shame that I went through men as fast as I went through vodka. Um, I lived a dangerous, promiscuous lifestyle going, just going through them and I would hurt them and I would use them and damage them the same way they'd done it to me and, and it made me feel better. It made everything that had happened to me feel a little bit justified. And it went on that way for several years. Um, I went through men, I kept, I was in the hospital numerous times with alcohol poisoning. I kept a water bottle of vodka in my car console. I kept it in my purse for work. Um, it was everything to me. And then in the fall of 2015, I found out I was pregnant again. And um, the man that I was with at that time, I remember him being 
so angry. And um, I remember him telling me, you have to abort, you have to abort this. I'm not going to support you um, because you're a drunk. And you can barely take care of the child you already have. Um, I remember um, I fighting and struggling with that because um, I was always pro-life. I believe, believed then, I believe now that life starts at conception. Um, but at that time, I did not feel like I had options. And um, so I, I aborted um, my eight-week-old child. I remember walking into the clinic um, with the pro-life people yelling in the background that I was a murderer and I was going to hell. Um, my friend who was with me at the time, she, um, I don't know if she was really a friend, but she was at that time. She gave me a handful of narcotics and um, hoping everything would be okay. And by the time my name was called, I was just a walking numb zombie. When I woke up, I was in a room full of women who had just done what I had done. Some were crying, some were laughing, some were on their phone, but they all had that same empty look in their eyes that mirrored mine. When my friend picked me up, I was, I was a mess. Um, she handed me some more pills and told me that everything would be okay and that I had done the right thing. But everything was not okay. Um, after that, I hit the bottle harder than I ever had. I watched myself go from being a functioning alcoholic to completely non-functioning. It could not take care of my son. I was a person that always called off work because I was hungover or I was in withdrawal. I remember specifically um, the one day I lived with my parents at that time and um, my room was in the basement. And I remember my son had a therapy appointment or something, doctor appointment. And I remember trying to walk up the steps and I couldn't because I was too drunk. And uh, my mom, she met me at the top of the stairs and she said, you need to go downstairs. You are not fit to take care of your child. And those words were harsh, but they were so true. Um, That day, I wrote up a will um, for what was going to happen to my son um, after I was gone. And a week later, when everyone was under the oppression, I was going to work. I checked myself into a hotel room with every intent of leaving in a body bag. I swallowed a bottle of pills followed by a bottle of vodka. And I remember nothing more after that. When I say it's by the grace of God, 
that I'm here. It's by the grace of God, and it is by that alone. There is no record that I had second thoughts and called EMS before I passed out. The hotel manager states they never checked on me. I have no idea how I got from a hotel to an ER. There's no logical reason that I'm still here, but we serve a God who does not work logically, at least not by our minds. Um, I woke up in the ER again. Um, I spent three days in critical care detoxing and then I was moved to psych for an evaluation and treatment. And my mind started clearing up and I decided that no matter what it took, I needed to get my life put back together. And um, that's when I entered the Teen Challenge program in Vestal, New York. Um, rehab was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. It was also the best decision I ever made. Um, two weeks after being there, I gave my life to Jesus. And that was just the beginning. Um, I learned so much about God and who he is and what he had done for me. I learned that I did not have to get things in order to come to him. I just had to come to him like I was and he was there and he would do the changing. I learned that God is love not the kind I was used to, but the purest, unconditional love you've ever known. I learned how to forgive and not just go through the motions. In order to give, you have to feel, and I had years of feeling to catch up on. I learned that pain was not created or caused by God. He is not the author of pain. Our circumstances cause pain, our choices cause pain but that's not who God is. On the days where I cried until there was no tears left, God held me and he wept with me. He is a healer, he is a restorer, he is a chain breaker. Things that I didn't know were possible happened. My brother, who I hated, is now my role model and one of my closest friends. My sisters came back around and today are some of my biggest supporters. My parents are no longer my enemies. And for any teenagers here, they never are. They just know what they're talking about. So listen to them for the most part. Um, I would be lost without my family, but I can't, and I'm thankful for them, but I cannot put enough emphasis on my gratefulness to Jesus Christ. He is everything. The Bible states that without him, we are nothing, and we truly, truly are. Without him, my story would exist, wouldn't exist. I would be laying cold and six feet under. I will say that life with Jesus is not easy. Your troubles don't just magically go away, um, and it's not a quick fix. And I love how we were reminded a couple weeks ago that we should actually anticipate troubles if we're followers of Christ.
the world is not for Jesus and we shouldn't expect our lives to be easy. But I am telling you, it is worth it. It is so worth it. The program I went through was a year-long program. I was let go with their blessing though at eight months. Uh, my son's health was deteriorating and he was physically unstable. So I went back home. Um, I relapsed briefly at home, but with the tools I learned at Teen Challenge and the help of family, friends, and most of all Jesus, I was able to get back up. During the time of my relapse, my son was admitted to a long-term pediatric inpatient um, hospital um, for, to get stabilized and for rehab. Um, his health did stabilize and he made improvements in leaps and bounds while he was there. He regained everything he had lost. And um, we came home in February of 2017. We um, found a beautiful little house to call ours um, and life was great. Um, I was involved in my church, everything was just going great, and I'm like, yay, this is what it looks like to serve Jesus. Um, on June 1st, 2017, I was away from home at the time, and I got a call from my son's nurse that he was having a seizure, and it wasn't stopping. By the time I got home, um, EMS was already there, and they were working on stabilizing him, but it, uh, it never happened. Um, two days later, he was gone. I, um, I've known pain in my life. I've never known a pain of losing a child up until that point and I didn't know that pain emotional pain could hurt bad enough to cause physical pain I I felt like my heart had been ripped out of my chest um, my son was what I lived for at that point um, my whole identity was wrapped up in taking care of him. I can't describe to you how bad that hurt. I lived in a fog for months and um, I was so scared of relapse that I actually returned to Teen Challenge so that I had a safe place to grieve. I, um, I stayed there for several weeks and then came back home and got back to work. Um, I have no idea how I stayed sober through the first year of his death, except for by the power of Jesus Christ. You do not go through experiences like that and come out better on the other side, except having Jesus Christ in your life. Through my son's death, I learned that God's grace is enough. It's not just nice words we say from a black book. 
is truth. It is powerful. I dove into the word of God like I never had before, and I held on to every promise of heaven and all the promises of comfort and peace because that is all I had. I knew if I turned back, I would not make it. And um, I held on to the words of my little boy. He used to always tell me, keep your eyes on Jesus, mommy. And um, that's where it's at. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus because we will slip up in snap of a finger, literally. That's how long it takes. I learned that God didn't just spit out a bunch of words, but that his word is so alive and it is so powerful. And that despite life's circumstances, he is so, so good. I um, cannot, I wish I could emphasize it enough. Um, my words seem pretty inadequate when I'm trying to describe what Jesus Christ is to me, what he means to me. He is, he is the answer for every little thing, every little thing from the littlest, tiniest concern we have to things like the death of a loved one. He has the answers for everything. We don't always get to know those answers, but the peace that we can gain from holding on to that it's everything. Um, fast forward two and a half years, and here I am. I am a wife to the most amazing man I know. And I don't just say that because we're newlyweds. He really is amazing. Um, he supports me. Um, he has broken the mold of all men are bad. Um, <laughs> And I thank you for your love, your support. Um, I'm a mom again. And I didn't think that would ever happen. I have a beautiful little eight-year-old boy that I get to call mine. Um, my family, I, I just, God is so good, people. He's so, so good. Um, and I'm not saying it's always easy. Um, my life is full and busy and sometimes just hard. Um, but I am at peace and my soul is at rest most days. Um, this past week may have been a bit of an exception because I was really nervous about this. <laughs> so, but... But still, um, Jesus is everything that he ever promised to be. He is a sustainer. He is a shelter. He is a healer and a redeemer. He has made beauty from ashes. And he has turned my mourning into joy. He molds me and loves me. And all I have to do is trust him, and that's it. Nothing else. And I swear... He will do the same for everybody that's sitting in this building and anywhere else. Um, my struggles with alcohol have not gone away. I keep begging God to take the drive away, to take the urge away. And I'm not there yet. 
But um, I remember talking to my dad one time, and he said it's been over 30 years for him. And he said it's still there. He said every time you say no, it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier. Um, I like, um, in Philippians, it's probably one of my favorite books, but specifically in Philippians 3, where Paul is talking about the things that he's accomplished and working towards. And then in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this or that I am perfect, but I'm press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and striving toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Um, by being baptized today, rebaptized, I look at it as um, another step towards having another uh, stake in the ground, so to speak. Um, a place that I can look back to when I'm drawn to my old ways and say, this is again where I made a choice to follow Jesus. And my old days are done, and I'm not going back. By the grace of God, I am not the person I was before. I am new, I am redeemed, and I'm whole. Um, praise the Lord. And uh, before I won't finish up, I'm just going to take this time real quick to thank you as a church for making me feel so welcome and so at home. Um, so thank you. God bless you. You guys know that chorus? It's real simple. Just God is so good. God is so good. You know? Can we sing that real quick? God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Amen. Ah. Uh, Thank you, Amanda, very much for helping us to worship this morning. If you, in case you want, you can, well, not if you want, you, you better do it. Go back and get changed. Um, and for just a few minutes, I promise I'm not going to go long. Famous last words of a preacher. Um, but I just want to share with you just briefly about this Jesus who saves from a pretty familiar story in Matthew chapter 14. It's the story of where Peter walks on water. Um, and uh, rightfully so, Peter usually gets a lot of press in this story, and Matthew talks about it for a reason. Um, but before Peter could come out and walk on water, it was Jesus that came to them walking on water. And this past week, is, uh, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know, if you're part of the E2 course, the Equipped and Empowered course, we have a daily reading plan where we just read a chapter together every day. And, and I was, this was part of the reading this past week, and and I just felt like the Lord just gave me this word and just wanted, wanted me to share it with you this morning. 
But in Matthew chapter 14, it had been a, it'd been a pretty busy day for Jesus and the disciples. In fact, in Mark's parallel account of this same story, it says that they, they, the crowds were gathering all around him. Jesus was healing all sorts of people. And they couldn't even away, get away to get a meal. And so Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat with him, and they head to the other side. And so they head to the other side of the lake, but by the time they get there, the crowds um, were so zealous to, to get more of Jesus that they ran around the lake to the other side, and they met them there. And then it's out, in a, and Jesus, had just, he was trying to just get away with his disciples, but it was, a, it was a desert area. And then you guys know the other famous story that Jesus ends up feeding the 5,000 because they're out there in the middle of the nowhere. All of this had happened um, very impromptu, uh, spontaneously. And, and so Jesus ends up, you know, they find the loaves and the fishes, and he hands them, breaks them, he gives them to the disciples, they feed the crowd, and then finally he sent the crowds away. So it had been a couple days here of the disciples just, and Jesus just going, 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 and pouring out and pouring out and ministering. And uh, so then finally, though, even after all that, it says in Matthew chapter 14 that he dismissed the crowds and that Jesus went up on a mountain by himself to pray, but that he sent the disciples back to the other side again in the boat and that, you know, I don't know if he told them he was going to come later on or whatever, but he was going to find them eventually, I guess. But he sends them on their way and he went up on to the mountain to pray. But it says, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat, by this time, that had the twelve disciples in it, was a long way from the land, and it was being beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And then verse 25, and this is just what I want to share a few thoughts on for the next couple minutes. Verse 25 says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Here's the first thing I want to share is that I just want to notice when he comes to them. It says he came to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, the fourth watch of the night back at that time, you know, they didn't all have, you know, synchronized uh, watches and stuff on their iPhone or their iWatch or, or, or whatever, but they would just kind of took a general idea of what the time was from the position of the sun. And the fourth watch of the night was the darkest time of the night. Um, it was the latest time of the night. It was the time somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. There were four watches. They usually started around 6 p.m. and ran to 6 a.m. And they're now in the, in the fourth watch of the night. And probably if Jesus had sent them away sometime around, what to them would have been evening when everybody begins to go in and wrap things up. It would have been around 6 p.m. And so now for close to probably 9 to 12 hours, the disciples have been, have been struggling on the sea, but they're just not making any headway. They're not getting anywhere. And it's in this moment, in the fourth watch of the night, that Jesus comes to them. And the thing I love about that little phrase, that he comes to them in the fourth watch of the night, and then hearing Amanda's story this morning, is, guys, it, I know this sounds simple, but listen to me, it's never too late. It just isn't. It's just not too late. In fact, I would argue that throughout the scriptures, not always, and, and I love this morning that the two people we have getting baptized are Casey, who's 16, and Amanda, who's 32, and you know, most of us would consider Casey a, a, a young man, but God has transformed his life, and you know, as parents, that's, that's the testimony that all of us want, is for God to lay hold of the hearts of our kids at a young age, and I'm not saying that 32 is old, 
but it's a little bit older, and obviously, as you hear Amanda's story, she's been, she's been through a lot, and I'm sure that if you'd asked her family that, that there were many times throughout her life where they just said, it's too late, there's no hope, there's nothing we can do, we've tried. We've seen her try to change before, and she's failed. But Jesus reserves a special glory for himself at times, and, and, and you know, it, it's a mystery, his grace, like when, when it grabs our heart, like there's a verse in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul, and if you know, you know the story of the apostle Paul, like he was a persecutor of the church. He used to go around and kill Christians, like that was like his job. He felt it his duty to do that. But in Galatians chapter 1, somewhere around verses 15 and 16, Paul says, but when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, when he was pleased to do it, he saved me. And we can rejoice this morning that no matter what your story is, like we can rejoice that God has been pleased to reveal his son in Casey, but we can also rejoice that God has been pleased to reveal his son now to Amanda here in the last couple of years, and that he's taken her through all that he's taken her through. And if it's your life or the life of somebody else that you love, guys, it doesn't matter if it's the fourth watch of the night, Jesus will still come to you. He will still come to you. It is not too late and for those of us that call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, and especially for those of you that, you know, Mercy Hill is your home, guys, let us never forget this. It is never too late. He'll come to you in the fourth watch of the night. Secondly, not just, not just when he comes to them, but just simply that he came to them. They didn't come to him. In fact, again, as you read this, and you can read this parallel account in Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, and it says that he can see them. That he sees that they're struggling against the wind and against the waves. But picture it, he's up on a mountain, you know, on land. The disciples can't see him. They don't even know which direction land probably is anymore. Because their boat is being tossed to and fro. But Jesus sees them. And he comes to them. And I love, you know, Amanda's story just because it's, I mean, it's true for all of us. If we know Jesus is Savior. Guys, it's not you, it's him. And I will fight you tooth and nail and I will proclaim this till the day I die that Jesus Christ was at work in your life far before you were ever seeking after him. He was seeking after you. That's how salvation happens. The theological term is prevenient, but I like the term preemptive. That God's preemptive grace, that he came to seek and save the lost, that he, if you know Jesus as Savior, Yes, absolutely. You made a decision. Yes, you called out to him. Yes, you cried out to him. You chose to, in some way, give him your life, to surrender to him, to put your faith and trust in him. But long before you were seeking him, he was seeking you. He came to them. There was no way they could have got to him, but he got to them. Man, it's what he does. It's what he does, guys. He saves sinners. And he's still doing it today. I praise God that we get to be witnesses to at least a couple of those this morning. And finally, I just want to point out, not just when he came and that he came, but how he came. How he came. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. How does he come? He comes supernaturally. And I think that this is important to point out, and you could hear it in Amanda's testimony, is that, guys, what the new birth is, the reason we get so excited and we sing with all our heart and we're going to cheer in a few minutes when we put somebody down under the water and bring them back up, 
because what this is just physically like this isn't supernatural like we're going to do it we're going to take them down bring them back up but what it represents is completely supernatural that almighty god through the gospel reaches down and lays hold of the hearts of sinners and what once was dead he makes alive he makes us alive and when he comes he comes walking on the sea, in the supernatural, doing what absolutely positively is impossible with man, but what is absolutely positively possible with God. Is that the new birth is something that's supernatural. It's not just mouthing words, although yes, can, you know, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. You cry out to him, yes, like we, like we do this, but man, what happens inwardly? It's all of him. He comes supernaturally to each one of us walking on the sea. And I just want to remind us of that this morning. Because I bet for each one of us in here, first of all, it might be in our own life. It might be in your life that you just think, man, I've gone too far. Gone through the first watch, the second watch, the third watch. Jesus doesn't see me anymore. That's a lie. He'll come to you in the fourth watch of the night. And you might be so disoriented that you don't know. <laughs> you don't know which way's which. You don't know which way's up, which way's down. Left, right, or straight. Doesn't matter. You might not know how to get to him, but he knows how to get to you. And again, that when he comes, guys, he comes in the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's not just about believing a certain set of right things, of right doctrines. It is a new heart and a new life that he gives you. And I know that so many people, just in talking with folks over the years that are wrestling with coming to the Lord, or even after they do, one of their greatest fears is, I'm going to mess up again. I'm going to fall away again. And here's the good news of the gospel, is that those he saves, the Bible says, he saves to the uttermost. The work that he begins in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And you don't have to worry about overcoming sin. That's why he comes to you. And Jesus promised on the night that he was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, he promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but that he would send the Holy Spirit to live in them so that he could live his life through them. You could not ask for a closer companion. Many years ago, uh, or several years ago, Hannah and I had somebody living with us, a young guy living with us for about three months, and he was going through a rough season, kind of similar to maybe some of the stuff that, that Amanda shared that she went through this morning. Um, but he was coming out of a season of trying to get away from drugs, and he was, he was living in our house, and we knew him, and, and we, were, we were glad to do it. But it was difficult. It was, it was, it was hard, and because, you know, you have somebody come into your, into your house, into your into your space. I mean, he's there and he, you know, sees you with your kids and he's there when you eat breakfast and he's there when you eat 
when he eats supper, and he's just, he's just there, and it was, and it was hard. Um, but again, not really comparing that as much as contrasting it, that Jesus, though, comes into our lives, and um, obviously it's not bad, it's not difficult, it's, it's, it's good, but he's not just in our house, he's in our heart. He's in our hearts. And I just want to remind you this morning that whether it's for you or whether it's for somebody else, that this good work that he began in you or somebody else, he is the one who's going to carry it on to completion as you do what Amanda encouraged us to do. Just trust him. Just trust him. And again, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, I don't know if you've caught on yet. Maybe I shouldn't tell you the secret. But it's the same message here every week. We talk about Jesus. We talk about how awesome he is. And then I tell you, in some way, shape, or form, just trust him. Just trust him. That's what transformed Amanda and Casey's life, and that's what will continue to transform and keep their lives and yours and and my life as well. Amen? You ready to baptize some folks? Let's do it. All right? Guys, you can come on up. Uh, First of all, Amanda, we're going to do you first. Casey, you can come up too, buddy. And Scott, you can just come up with him now. Stand over here to the side.